0: Chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, which is on page 765. So from chapter 1, uh, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, but also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And the next readings on the next page. There's Zephaniah 3, uh, the whole chapter. Ah, soiled, def- defiled, oppressing city. It has listened to no voice. It has accepted no correction. It has not trusted in the Lord. It has not drawn near to its God. The officials within it are roaring lions. Its judges are evening wolves that leave nothing until the morning. Its prophets are are reckless, faithless persons. Its priests have profaned what is sacred. They have done violence to the Lord. The Lord within its righteous, he does no wrong. Every morning he renders his judgment, each dawn without fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins, I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them, their cities have been made desolate, without people, without inhabitants. I said, surely the city will fear me, it will accept correction, it will not lose sight of all that I have brought upon it. but they were were the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I arise as a witness. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger. For in the fire of my passion, all the earth shall be consumed. At that time, I would change the speech of the peoples, to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, my scattered ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain." For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel, they shall do do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will pasture and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Zion. O O daughter Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He he will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. At that time, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And the final reading is in, uh, it's from Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, um, which is on page 1006 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they said, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying amen hallelujah and from the throne came a voice saying praise our God all you all you his servants and all who fear him small and great then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thund- thunder peals crying out hallelujah For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints.
1: You could be uh, forgiven for thinking that Australians hate the idea that God judges. Uh, I don't know how you felt as Zephaniah chapter 1 was read out. It's kind of an interesting way to start a prophecy, don't you think? Ready? Here are the first words I will utterly sweep away everything from the entire earth. Makes for pretty difficult listening, really. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. Uh, former generations understood, uh, expected, even prayed for the judgment of God. But not many of us. We wince when we hear that sort of stuff. However I think that's only a surface reading of the issue because there is another angle of approach to judgment. You see this in response to particularly appalling crimes of brutality and violence outside courtrooms, Uh, on social media, in news reports we want justice, we want judgment, we want punishment for heinous crimes. And we're outraged when criminals get away without facing judgment. We're a little bit ambivalent about this whole question of judgment. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian and author, uh, has written very perceptively about this ambivalence. Uh, On the one hand, he notes that we're pretty allergic to the idea that God judges whilst at the same time, we're pretty happy to take up that role of judge ourselves. Listen to what he says, I quote. One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword, to to execute judgment, you see. Is God not love? Long-suffering and all-powerful love? It's a good point, right? Isn't God love? How can love judge? Haven't you, you thought that or heard someone say that at least? A counter-question could go something like this, Wolf notes, he says, is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what's compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole of the history of Judaism and Christianity? Maybe they knew a little bit more than us, is what he's saying. But then he goes on, most people who insist on God's non-violence, that is that God doesn't judge people, cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. That is, they approve of other people or even themselves judging. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. That we should bring down the powerful from their thrones, that's a quote from Luke chapter 1, seems responsible. That God should do the same, as the song of that revolutionary virgin explicitly states, seems crude. It's a fascinating point, isn't it? People are very, very happy for us to be the judges. We think we'll do a lot better job than God. And of course, as soon as you put it like that, you think, hmm, I wonder why we think we'd do such a better job than he would. He he goes on, um, uh, Wolf, and makes, I think, an even more insightful and even more challenging point. He says that it's only a belief in God's judgment that will ever be able to restrain our own excesses of judgment, our own slippage into retaliatory violence. It's the fact that God judges... That enables us to refrain from simply winding tighter the cycle of violence. Listen again to what he says, I quote, my thesis that the practice of non-violence by us requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss my thesis, I suggest imagine Imagining that you are talking to people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Okay, says so you, you, you think that the, the way to persuade people not to be violent in their revenge is to have a non vengeful God? You think that's true? Well, you go talk to some people who really know about things. You go talk to some people in Serbia and Croatia, in Rwanda. He goes on, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. You have to have a nice couch and a nice big flat screen TV in front of you to have such a, a view as that. He says, in contrast, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that view will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, wolf concludes God would not be worthy of our worship. And he says violence thrives because it's secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. If God's not going to do it, we have to. Because God is going to do it, we don't have to. That's what Wolf says. Zephaniah, the prophet, um, quite possibly uh, of royal descent, Uh, he was uh, the great-grandson of the former great king Hezekiah, lived during the reign of Josiah and he spoke of judgment. He warned of it. Josiah was the boy king uh, of what was left of God's people Israel, the uh, southern tribe of Judah. And Zephaniah was a contemporary of Habakkuk, who we looked at uh, his prophecy last week, and was witnessing the last gasp of Israel's attempt to be faithful to God. This was being led by Josiah, who had rediscovered the The Torah, the constitution of Israel, the book of Deuteronomy in the temple. Imagine, for example, that the constitution and entire legal code of Australia had gotten curiously lost for a century or two. Kind of funny sort of situation. Well, that's what happened in Israel. No one knew which way was up. But now Josiah is attempting to revive the spiritual and national life in Judah, although it turns out that it was in vain. The corruption of the nation under its former kings was simply too deeply ingrained. And Zephaniah warns of God's judgment. He knows of God's judgment. In a sense, his words were out of season since at least uh, Josiah was having a go, but Zephaniah could see which way it was headed. And so he spoke some of the fiercest, some of the most striking words, warning of judgment, ever spoken even amongst the wide-eyed minor prophets. We're going to work hard to put aside the pleasant captivities of the liberal mind for just a moment before we go back to reading our Sydney Morning Heralds tomorrow and hear the crystal crystal clarity of what Zephaniah has to say under three headings. First, the content of his warning of judgment. Second, the purpose of his warning of judgment. And then finally, the result of his warning of judgment. Content, purpose, result. Okay, content. It's important to say from the start that the language that we read here in Zephaniah is way up on the Richter scale it's it's really extreme it's poetry you can tell it's poetry because the lines don't go to the edge of the line and they're not all lined up you know that's how you tell what poetry is it just sort of stops halfway and then comes back um actually Richard made a suggestion earlier it's you could think of it if you're not into poetry but instead you're into sport not that you can't be into both I just want to say okay but if you're into sport it's it's like the way sports commentators talk about how you know, say, South Africa absolutely crushed and ground into the dirt those English dudes who beat Australia the week before in the World Cup final. Did anyone know that that happened last night? No. Okay, so there was this rugby game and um, one team beat another and they scored a few more points and no one really got hurt. But the way he described that, right, is with extreme language. Well, that's what Zephaniah is doing here. Uh, What that doesn't mean is that it's not true. Okay, you don't You don't read poetry and say, oh, well, it's poetry, so it's not true, as though only propositional statements contain truth. That would be far too flat a way to understand language. What it does mean is that the poetry has to be heard on its own terms, not on our terms. And in particular, we need to hear three things in this first warning chapter of Zephaniah. The first is that the judgment of God is utterly universal in scope. The language is total, isn't it? Verse 1, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. And then just to make sure we get the point, he goes on in verse 2, I will sweep away humans and animals, I'll sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Now, if you have your wits about you, you'll uh, hear the undoing of the very being and order of creation. That which was created first, or we swept away last, that which was created last will be swept away first and judged. The language of swept away is crucial because it speaks of cleansing, right? That's what you do when you sweep something. Um, In case you aren't familiar with cleaning, uh, it usually comes with things like a broom and and a a vacuum cleaner and that sort of stuff. And, And when you sweep something away, the whole idea of it is to make it clean. In other words, while the poetry speaks of total annihilation of absolutely everything, that's how poetry works. It works to grab your attention. You could say, nothing whatsoever will escape the searching cleansing of God. Except that would make for a very short chapter and would be really boring. And so Zephaniah has something more powerful to say, just as true but far more powerful. The the fact that the prophecy of Zephaniah ends with a beautiful picture of a restored people who live in peace and joy means that unless Zephaniah is capable of contradicting himself in the space of a Just a few chapters he's he's not actually talking about the end of all life on the planet right so that's the first thing the second thing is that we need to see the judgment of God is as it always is directed against that which pollutes and defiles and destroys what the Bible calls sin and wickedness verse 4 I will make the wicked stumble I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth says the Lord In chapter 3, which was read out for us, we get something of a greater sense of what this wickedness consisted in. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 Our soiled, defiled, oppressing city. It has listened to no voice. It has accepted no correction. It has not trusted in the Lord. It has not drawn near to its God. The officials within it are roaring lions. Its judges are evening wolves that leave nothing until the morning. Its prophets are reckless, faithless persons. Its priests have profaned what is sacred. They've done violence to the law. The Lord within it is righteous. He does no wrong. Every morning he renders his judgment, each dawn without fail. But the unjust knows no shame. The picture here is of the same sort of failed state that we looked at last week when we looked at Habakkuk, the, the power base of the city of Jerusalem, That is, it's formal power structures of justice and law and enforcement and authority. Well, well, Zephaniah says they are used to oppress rather than to seek justice. There's only arrogance and deafness to the cries of the poor and the marginalized. Those with power, the the officials, Zephaniah says, are roaring lions. Its judges are evening wolves. I mean, you don't have to actually have encountered an evening wolf to know the point that Zephaniah is getting at. What does an evening wolf do? It snatches up and grabs and eats up everything in its path. It leaves nothing. It devours and consumes. The teachers, the prophets, um, perhaps those guardians of public truth, um, we might say the equivalent of journalists and writers and public intellectuals in our own age, they're reckless. They're deceivers and faithless. And the truth is that we're actually reasonably comfortable to hear of judgment on these abusers of power. And we actually wish that there were more of it in our own day. When, when someone challenges you about a God whose who's love can't judge, just ask a few questions back, really? You really think that, that God ought not to judge? What about? What about the Woolworths executives who've underpaid staff by squillions of dollars? Or let me give you another one. What about those vile, vile criminals who traffic women and girls and leave them to die in a truck like we heard about just a few weeks ago? You don't think judgment's right for them? You want God to just sort of smile and be like a, you know, you know indulgent grandfather? That's what you want? No, we cry out for Justice. Which leads to the third thing that we need to notice about the content of this warning of Zephaniah. You see, like all the prophets and all the Bible, Zephaniah is not so naive to separate off the moral from the spiritual. Very, very important to understand this, to see this, to, uh, to get it, and to integrate it. What, what I'm getting at is this. We are happy in our culture for judgment to come on those who corrupt public justice. but our culture is deeply offended by the idea that people could be held responsible for their private spirituality. And of course the key is in those words public and private. Justice is public. Spirituality is private. Justice is objective, it's fixed, it's black and white, it's right and wrong. Spirituality, well it's subjective, it's personal, it's it's just a matter of preference and culture and conviction. That's just how things are, our culture says. And what that means, of course, is that it's absolutely right for judgment to come on public injustice and it's absolutely wrong for judgment to come on private spirituality. Except that Zeph and I will have none of it. Who says that's just how things are. Actually that's not how things are for most people in the world today. They're perfectly clear that the matters of private spirituality are every bit as much matters of truth and false and right and wrong as anything else. It's not how things are for most of the people in the history of the world actually. It's an extraordinary arrogance to think that just because that's the way the modern liberal West thinks that that's just how things are. No, Zephaniah has far too holistic a view of people to think that you can cut off their public justice life, their outward actions and behaviours, from their inner spiritual life. You you can't do that. You can't pretend that people can be compartmentalised like that, just as sort of Lego constructions with different bits only externally connected. And so Zephaniah's warning of God's judgement is directed equally against the private spirituality of people as it is against their public injustice. Chapter 1, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Yes, even against Judah, even against Jerusalem, the judgment of God will come, warns Zephaniah, because they polluted their hearts with the worship of false gods. Not not just different gods, not just an alternative choice, not just a a lifestyle decision, false gods. The fertility gods of the Baals. The the hosts of heaven, that is the the sun and the stars, what we would call uh, people who sort of actually put stock in uh, the, the zodiacs and the horoscopes and all of that kind of thing. Those who mix and match their spiritual convictions honoring the Lord but also honoring Milcom, possibly the god Molech, whose worship included offering child sacrifices. Later in the chapter we heard of the Lord who will, verse 12, search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs, those who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good nor will he do harm. Now I want to suggest that This, this is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle that you need to come to a resolution about. How to recognize and resist our culture's insistence that public justice and private spirituality are two completely separate categories. That one can fall under the need for judgment according to what's right and wrong, and the other one can't because that is to split people up into compartments in a way that just doesn't work. If you buy it, if you buy our culture's view on this, this, their assumption about this, you'll never understand the Bible's warnings of judgment. It will always seem perverse to you, because the Bible has far too integrated a view of what a human being is. A psycho-spiritual bodily whole. One piece, integrated and unified, so that the spiritual issues of the heart, the the decisions of the will, and the actions of the body, all fit together. You can't separate them off. You can't pretend that they can be dealt with separately, like that. Zephaniah warns us of God's judgment. Which leads to the second point, um, what is the purpose of such a warning? You see, there's only one point to announcing that there is a judgment to come, right? Why tell people that there is a judgment coming unless the very purpose of telling people is to call them to prepare for it? It's, it's a paradox, although it's not a particularly complex one. The whole point of the, and purpose of warning of judgment is to help people to survive the judgment if you don't want them to survive then you wouldn't warn you'd just judge wouldn't you and that's exactly what we see in chapter 2 having finished chapter 1 with one of the fiercest warnings yet, you think chapter 1 starts badly look how it ends the day of the Lord is coming a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is all going to happen. And then Zephaniah says, okay, so get ready for it. Chapter two, verse one, gather together, gather, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like the drifting chaff, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the Lord's wrath. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. Notice that what, what Jeremiah is saying here is not that the day of the Lord won't arrive after all, right? Jeremiah is not saying. Sorry, Zephaniah is not saying. Uh, that the judgment of God will, you know what, it just turns out that it was a bad idea and we're not going to go through with it. It's fixed. It's determined. God's fierce cleansing anger against the evils of this world and the evildoers of this world is not going to be diluted and compromised as it must not. But, But there is still a possibility, namely that you perhaps may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. The image here is of a bushfire. I mean, we're pretty familiar with that this week. A bushfire that rages over the land, but with the possibility of a cave, perhaps, or or of a depression in the ground that means that someone could be hidden from the flames and survive the fire. And notice the essence, the fundamental need in order to draw near to this perhaps, this hiddenness. Did, did Did you hear it on the way through? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. There is no other way ever you can approach God than through humility. And, and what, is, what is that? I'll tell you what that means. What that means is this. Humility is the fundamental conviction in your life that you are not the God of your life. That your life is a gift to you from God and is therefore something for which you are accountable to Him. Responsible to Him. Now I wonder if there is any bigger stumbling block for our culture. Because if there's one thing that never needs to be stated, let alone defended, because it is so self-evidently true, it's so blindingly obvious, it is that we are autonomous individuals. No one ever argues for that. You only ever argue from that, because it's just so obvious. It's what uh, Michel Foucault called an unthought. You don't need to think it, you think from it. We are all autonomous individuals, we are responsible TO OURSELVES AND OURSELVES ONLY. Uh, THE TRUTH IS, OF COURSE, MOST PEOPLE ACTUALLY THINK THAT EVEN THE LAWS OF THE LAND DON'T REALLY APPLY TO THEM. OTHERS MUSTN'T PARK IN FRONT OF DRIVEWAYS WHERE IT SAYS NO STOPPING, BUT IF I NEED SOME QUICK CASH AND THE ATM IS RIGHT THERE, THEN IT'S OKAY FOR ME TO DO IT. BECAUSE YOU KNOW WHAT? THE RULES DON'T REALLY APPLY. To me. They don't. Only the most extreme failures of mine would ever bring me into a position of accountability to anyone else ever. And it's precisely that attitude which is the target of Zephaniah's invitation to be humble, is to know that the truest thing about you is that you are not your own. You are not your own. You belong by rights to God. And so you just lay yourself before him. You are his to judge. It's the only way you can ever approach God. He will not compete with you for who will be God in your life. But when you embrace it, when you seek the God who is your maker and sustainer, your Lord and your judge. When you seek him like that, then he will also become your saviour. You have hope that you'll be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. Which leads into the third point, the result of this warning of danger. Because for those who hear the warning, who adopt this posture of humility, who know that they're not their own, the kingdom of God, the the reign of God comes near. The kingdom of God always has an upside down, this beautiful, beautiful upside down character to it. The the top ones are brought low, the low ones are brought high. Chapter 3 verse 19, I will deal with all the oppressors at that time and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown. In all the earth, the oppressors will be dealt with. Those who have abused their power and influence, who have crushed and cheated others in their arrogance and pride, they'll be brought down, they'll be wiped away. And their victims, the lame, are saved. The outcasts are gathered. People on the margins, who are always the ones who suffer most under injustice. The great reversal. And another one of the crucial pieces of the puzzle that we get from Zephaniah is that this reversal, this judgment, this bringing about of justice requires nothing less than the personal presence of God, the Lord, in our midst. Listen to this beautifully personal, even intimate description in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. One commentator I read said this is like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. Okay, you can, you can remember it, right? Because it's Zephaniah 3.17. So, just, I mean, look, the Lord your God is in your midst. A warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Uh, the picture here is perhaps of a, a parent over their child. I don't know if you've uh, seen this or had this done to you, if you can remember back when you are a kid, but your, your parent leaning over you and and strange thing happens things happen to parents faces when they lean over their children they just go sort of gooey and soft mm-hmm. and sometimes they sing songs or maybe it's not a parent or a child maybe it's a lover and the beloved and that's the lord over you as you've turned to him in humility he rejoices over you with gladness Um, I I think many of us kind of wander through the Christian life thinking the Lord is vaguely tolerant of me. I mean, he puts up with it. He'd rather, really rather was, you know, I was a little bit better. But he tolerates. It's so far from the truth. He sings songs over you. He rejoices over you with gladness. He pumps his fist. He's stoked in you. See, God does not fix things up from a comfortable distance. He doesn't stand back and wave a wand. He doesn't even turn up like the kind of lone ranger hero, do the job and then disappear off into the distance. What it is to have a fixed up world is to have the living, loving, holy presence of God in our midst, the Lord dwelling with his people, he their God, and they his people. And of course he did, didn't he? He did turn up. He did come to be with us in the person of his son, the Emmanuel, God with us who healed the sick and fed the poor and raised the dead and forgave sins and defeated the power of sin and death in substitutionary sacrifice and grave-busting resurrection. Because Jesus knew every bit as well as Zephaniah that you can't deal with the issues of public justice without dealing with the issues of private spirituality at the same time. And so in him we hide. In him we find our life. In him we seek God with all our soul. In him, in Jesus, this gift of the Father to us to shield us from the great cleansing to come. Because you see, it still will come. This judgment of which Zephaniah prophesied, it still will come because Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead as we confess in just a moment. We'll stand and say it. I believe our Saviour will be our Judge. Our Judge will be our Saviour, one of us who knows precisely what it's like to live like us. And so it will be a judgement of our honesty and fairness and justice. And then as the Apostle John puts it in his vision right at the end of the book of Revelation, nothing cursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. You want to know what comes from judgment? Glory. Pure, pure Glory. Well, let's draw the threads of this series together. We've been learning from the Minor Prophets, just just three of the twelve, how to live in a broken, messed up, suffering, difficult world. A world of tears. They knew such a world all too well. And they spoke the word of God for people who experienced it, like us. They face it square on in faith. And the confidence that God is true to his word. Some of their teaching is profoundly challenging and deeply countercultural. Some of it is clear and straightforward. But all of it is deeply comforting for those who can't afford the luxury of armchair speculations about what it's like to live in a broken world. And that's especially true, I think, of Zephaniah. He knows that we all desperately crave a better world where justice prevails and corruption is no more. And he also knows that the only way, the only way to a new heavens and a new earth, just another way of describing what it is that we all yearn for, where righteousness is at home, the only path to peace and joy and restored fortune will ever be through the judgment of God. There is no other hope. There can be no other ultimate hope. You can't trust anyone else to do this. You can't do it. The politicians can't do it. The economists can't do it. The philosophers will never do it. They will never see it. They don't have the wisdom and the power or the love to usher it in. The only path to peace and joy is through the cleansing judgment of God. And so tonight, as we come to the table of the Lord, in, in humility, we kneel before him. We are receivers. We're not, we're not givers. We don't come bringing our gifts to God, a thing to, to offer him, which he'll be pleased at. We're receivers. Not heroes. We look to Jesus. Jesus will send us out. In the power of his spirit to live and work to his praise and glory. Yes, that's true too. But first we are receivers because it's in him we know
0: the hope of the glory to come. Amen.